Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm so glad to have all of you with us for today's show. Uh, Let me get right to introducing the panel because, as always, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, Patricia Murphy is with us, as she is on Fridays. She, of course, is a political reporter and the political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her column, Political Insider, on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the jolt which is the daily summary of both important and often just plain interesting little tidbits about uh, politics in Georgia and well beyond. Patricia, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bill. Um, I want to, you, your column for Sunday is already posted online, and I'm going to want to talk to you about it at some point, because while everybody's worried about the Buckhead uh, movement here in the city, you went and visited the real Buckhead. <laughs> The people in the real Buckhead have some real opinions about another Buckhead. I'd love to talk about it. (laughs) We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, Very glad, though, that you could be with us. Um, Chuck Williams is here as well. Uh, You you know him as a reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus for many years. Chuck was a print reporter in Columbus and had a very, very big career doing that. And he moved over to TV and uh, has had... You're, Chuck, you've had real success making that trans- transition to TV, and we're always happy when you can be on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Reporting is reporting, although it is harder when you got to read the story to somebody. <laughs> okay. We're joined by Leo Smith today. You all know Leo as a Republican political consultant. He uh, is also the uh, head of Engaged Futures, an organization which does some lobbying and uh, community building um, around issues like education. Hi, Leo. Hello. How's everybody doing today? We're fine. Thanks for being here today. And um, we're joined by uh, State Senator Sonia Halpern, who is a Democrat from Atlanta. Sonia, I know you did the show one day when uh, Donna Lowry uh, took my place and hosted, but this is the first chance I've had to welcome you to the show, and I'm very, very happy you are with us. Is she getting set for the session? I am getting set for the session and excited to be with you today. We missed you when I was on with Donna, but really glad to be with you this morning, Bill. Uh, when a panelist who I haven't talked to on the show before, who is being introduced to our listeners, um, is first on, I always like to ask him, just give us a little capsule. Tell us just a little bit that people might want to know about you. Oh, sure. Well, I'm, I am a freshman legislator, so I am in year one of my <clears throat> first term. And I come to this job with a background in business, um, not-for-profit space, and really believe very much in issues around uh, access, equity, and opportunity. And so that, more than anything, cuts through everything that I've done over the course of the last 20 years. I think you and I both, at one point in our careers, got our paychecks from the same company, Cox. We did, yes. I'm a former Cox. (laughs) When I moved down to Georgia 23 years ago... I started at Cox Interactive Media, helping run uh, that business on the East Coast, and then moved over to Cox Newspapers. Ah, Okay. Well, thank you for giving us just a little background. That's very helpful to us. Uh, Patricia, you know, uh, there are a couple of stories that I really want to get to pretty early in the show today. One is this uh, new concern about a surge in cases of COVID, certainly across the country. The United States is now reporting 120,000 new cases per day, and that's up 40% from just two weeks ago. And we, we know that, that, that the dominant variant remains the Delta variant, but we also know that the surge is probably also because the Omicron or Omicron, depending on how you want to pronounce it, variant is starting to really take hold. It is particularly infectious. And um, it's increasingly clear that while Georgia right now has escaped any big surges, um, our numbers are up, and there's a lot of concern uh, that Omicron is headed our way. 
Yes, uh, we already saw today that three schools in Metro Atlanta have gone virtual because of mm-hmm. uh, a spike in COVID cases among teachers and students. Um, it feels like this spike um, in some ways is coming at just the right time for schools because schools are uh, largely going to be out after today. So kids will be able to be um, not in the classroom. But um, it's a really different time since last year when schools were really locked down tight about what they were recommending to their families. Do not travel. Do not be in small spaces with large groups. Uh, Now these schools, um, the governor's office, uh, the Department of Public Health, they're all really struggling with how to message right now because we know so little about Omicron except that it spreads quickly. Is it as bad? We don't know. Could you be hospitalized? Maybe. I think people are struggling to know what are the right choices to make right now. And um, public health officials, I feel like, are going to need to step into that and be very clear right now, if possible. Well, Chuck, uh, one thing we do know for certain is that vaccine rates in Georgia continue to languish. Um, Fully vaccinated people represent just about 50 plus percent of the population here and only about 25 percent of people who have had two shots according to the Department of Public Health, have had a booster. So we're still way behind in getting people protected against COVID-19. I, I agree, Bill, and that's going to be a particular problem <laughs> with the Omicron variant. Because, you know, it's interesting. My introduction really to it on a new standpoint happened this week, not in Georgia, but in Los Angeles. Uh, I did my podcast with Les Snead. He's the general manager of the Los Angeles Rams, and Les is a former Falcons player personnel guy. And the Rams have dealt with a massive COVID outbreak on their team. They were bad guys testing positive just before Monday night's game in Phoenix. And now I think the number's up to 25 people on the Rams roster. And Wes was communicating with me via text, and he said that this variant is for people that are testing, like pro football teams, which are testing on a regular basis, you're going to pick it up very quickly. And I think we can look at what's happening in the NFL, the NBA, and pro sports to realize those guys are testing, and they're testing regularly. That's where you're seeing this, and I know it's not a sports story, but the sports teams are going to be kind of the canary in the coal mine for this time. Sonia, um, so far, uh, the public health uh, uh, doctors are studying the variant, and, and they say that so far it appears that although this variant spreads f- much more rapidly than any previous one, so far the cases don't seem to be quite as severe. They're cautious about that, saying we don't have enough data to know the truth about whether it is going to produce severe COVID. But in the meantime, Sonia, where do you think we stand in this state with, you know, Patricia already mentioned there's a struggle trying to figure out how to get the messaging out. How is Georgia doing in trying to get people vaccinated from your point of view? And I think from the beginning, we've been really hesitant to go full on and just telling people to wear masks, right, and mandating that. That's not something that I expect that we're going to be willing to do at all at, at, at this point. But I do think that we can be more aggressive around vaccinations and really encouraging people to vaccinate and really pushing that down from the state level and then down, you know, down more to like our local county boards of health and really trying to get into neighborhoods and communities and, and, and underlying lining exactly why it's important. We're finding, as, as has been mentioned, that this variant, it's doubling in in short periods of time, it's, I believe, three times more contagious than other variants. And so we're going to see this thing proliferate. And while people who are double vaxxed, single vax, double vax, or triple vaxxed at this point, you know, don't seem to be um, really ha- having it at, at, at a dangerous kind of level. I mean, that's, I don't know that we're so sure that that's going to mean for those who are unvaccinated. And I do think the more that we can press on people that this is not done, that we still need to be cautious to wear masks that do protect you, the better off we're all going to be in trying to get behind this thing more quickly. Leo, the sad fact is that red states have suffered from COVID far more than blue states. I mean, that's just been documented over and over again. 
And it is because Republicans have shown far more reluctance to get vaccinated than Democrats. And I can't help but wonder, Leo, how is this going to play into the election in 2022? To what extent are some Republican leaders, especially more conservative ones, going to be willing to stand behind the need for vaccines if they feel it is not going to please their base to hear them talk that way? Yeah, there are several groups, uh, demographics, um, both political and sometimes racial and economic, that are resistant to vaccination, obviously for different reasons. For Republicans, it's mostly related to political rhetoric and messaging. And the important thing is, is that we have to find the motivation for why they will take it seriously. And and it looks like uh, the fact that it is impacting red states and may even impact in a way that some fear that might even swing elections in some small counties where a fraction of votes can make a difference. Maybe that's the motivation. I don't know. The good news is, is that more and more conservative talk show hosts and uh, people who have influence are saying get vaccinated. Um, the fact is natural immunity, heavily debated in, in uh, conservative circles as an alternative, is, uh, you know, we're hearing now that that's not enough. And people are adhering to research from Johns Hopkins and other places that, yes, natural immunity is not enough. We should be vaccinated. Hopefully, Republicans will continue to do that because all Americans need to live. So, Bill, Georgia's vaccination rate right now is at about 50 percent of, of adults mm-hmm. um, who have been fully vaccinated. The national average is 61 percent. And mm-hmm. if you look at states like New York and California, New York is 70 percent vaccinated. So it's hard not to look at those numbers and understand that there is a significant disparity. They're not just in vaccination rates, but in messaging. Um, and also uh, there is just a persistent population in Georgia and across the country um, that I think just do not see the value in it and, in fact, see it as negative. Um, When I talk to, uh, when I go out on political stories, the vaccine comes up invariably, particularly in conservative areas. Um, And I had a man tell me, who was very clearly over 70 years old, said, I'm not going to get vaccinated, and if I die from COVID, at least I die with my freedom. That just makes no sense. There are going to be new, there's going to be a requirement for new messengers, conservative messengers, to speak to their own audience, to people who trust them, to understand that getting the vaccine will save their lives. And there's no need to die with your freedom over something like this. It's preventable, and you can take care of yourself and your family by doing this. Um, But that message, I think, has gone as far as it's going to get from uh, political leaders who are um, seen as on the other side of your uh, on the wrong person side from somebody. Um, also, I think from healthcare professionals, I've heard routinely that people um, do become interested in getting vaccinated after a loved one becomes seriously ill or dies, um, but that's just not necessary either. So, Patricia, just pick up for a second on, on one of the things you said. If you're Brian Kemp right now and you find yourself in a in a very tough primary campaign against David Perdue, And one of the things you have to do to win uh, your uh, primary is appeal to the most conservative uh, voting base out there. Can you afford, even as governor of the state, how much are you going to want to press? As the governor did early on. I mean, the governor did a couple of vaccination tours of the state with DPH director Kathleen Toomey. Um, There are people who took issue with a lot of the ways he did not uh, take uh, strong enough action in terms of mitigation. But now, if if you're Governor Kemp, do you back off from wanting to talk much about vaccinations? I don't think so. And Brian Kemp's case in particular, um, he has already damaged with the same group of people who um, yeah. are unlikely to get vaccinated, quite frankly. Um, the message really needs to come from President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, said in November that she is not vaccinated, um, from people equating vaccines to the Holocaust, um, people equating vaccines uh, to uh, government uh, uh, overreach, overtake. Uh, it is uh, it is not that. It is a way to save your life. Um, but until those messages change, I think there will be a persistent group, um, particularly of conservatives, who are following their leaders, the leaders they trust. And hearing a message that is very different from what you hear from healthcare professionals. Um, there are, of course, Democrats who have also not been vaccinated. Um, they're going to need to continue to hear those messages true 
too, but again, from people whom they trust. All right. Well, we're going to watch how the, yeah. I'd like to piggyback real quickly on something Patricia said. She talked about the guy who said, I'll die with my freedoms. You know, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But what I'm finding talking to medical professionals down this way is those same people, the first thing they're asking for when they get in the hospital is the monoclonal antibodies, which is a treatment that helps in the first five days. So it really doesn't make sense. If you're not going to take the vaccine, but you want the monoclonal antibodies, and the people are becoming more and more, the people that are anti-vax or not going to get the vax or whatever you want to call them, are becoming more and more entrenched, at least the ones I'm talking to. All right. Uh, By the way, Chuck, uh, we should say that uh, Muskogee County Schools report that they've had a doubling of the number of COVID cases in uh, the schools down your way right now. So this thing is headed toward us in a big way. You know, one last thing on this, Sonia. Um, We have talked for a long time, all of us, about, uh, you know, COVID weariness and just wishing the whole thing were put behind us. The New York Times had a piece this morning talking about the fact that there are many New York companies that were opening their doors again, opening their offices, and now they're rethinking it. Now they're thinking we better keep people at home again. And and, and just the psychological damage that this is doing to all of us is really troubling, Sonia. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's been a long haul, right? I mean, we're 20 months or so in, and every time it looks like, you know, maybe we were at a break, a point where we can kind of ease up a little bit, we get the next variant. And so that kind of ongoing psychological, gosh, I just wish that this were behind me, uh, absolutely there. And you you see, I mean, here in Georgia, of course, we've been open all along, right? We never did the full-on shutdown. And you see it. There's nowhere you go where you don't see it. Everybody without their masks off, right? People are tired of that. And I think for businesses, they, they um, obviously are in a position to have to figure out for the safety, the larger kind of overall safety of employees and business as well, should they go ahead and open and have everybody come back in? Or has productivity been high enough while everybody's been working remotely, if they've been able to work remotely, to continue to do that for more time? The big question mark, of course, has always been how much time. At the beginning, we thought this will be quick and done, and 20 months later, here we still are. So it definitely yeah. is wearing on people, which is why we're also talking so much about mental health these days, not just with school children, but certainly all of us as adults in our different worlds as well. All right. Um, Thank you for that. Let's move on to another topic. Patricia, it's now finally official. Rivian is building a $5 billion assembly plant in Rutledge, Georgia. Um, We've been talking about it on the show, speculating about when it will happen, about uh, what we thought was going to happen for a couple days now. And yesterday, um, we got a note from a Rivian executive who heard the conversation we had yesterday morning. I had said that they were going to employ 8,000 people initially in the plant. And the executive said, thank you so much for talking about us. The initial number is, in fact, 7,500 people. So they asked that we please make that correction. And probably, you know, one of the reasons that occurred to me that they might want to do that, Patricia, is uh, they don't need to be caught up in overstating (laughs) hiring and then have people accuse them somehow of not living up to their promises, even though it's only 500 people. Yes, Bill, I have to tell you, while I was here on uh, the radio with you, I also got an email from a Rivian executive (laughs) that uh, I had said that they are going to have two EVs in production. And they said, actually, it's going to be three, just if you could just make sure everyone knows that. (laughs) Um, So we know they're going to have a ship-shaped PR department coming to Georgia. That's obvious. (laughs) Um, But I think it is uh, just the story to me is just so amazing. It is the largest economic development package that Georgia has ever had. It um, will be uh, very quickly the largest employer in that area. And this is going to transform very quickly 
an area of Georgia right now, if you head on 20 east and out of Atlanta, go about an hour east, um, right now it's all hayfields. Pretty soon it's going to be the largest manufacturing plant um, that most people have ever seen. If you have not worked in a manufacturing plant, you will never have seen anything like this. Um, it will uh, certainly tax the infrastructure there. There are going to be thousands of people with thousands of families with children who are going to need to be in schools. Um, they're going to want lunches for their lunch boxes. I mean, it, it, these are going to be very high-paying jobs. They'll be, they'll be looking for restaurants, um, all sorts of lifestyle benefits that are really going to crop up all around this um, for miles to go. Uh, these are towns right now in Georgia that you've driven past them before, the brick buildings that are boarded up, downtowns that have been emptied out. Uh, I think that will change very quickly for this area. It'll also change the rural way of life for a lot of people who are living there. Um, so we'll watch this very carefully. Um, the last thing I'll say is that because this is um, an electric vehicle, it really continues to push forward Georgia as a leader um, and an up-and-coming leader in um, uh, kind of alternative uh, energy manufacturing. We have solar plants. We have uh, battery factories at the SK Battery Factory. Now the EV uh, car company coming in. Um, it's just a fascinating time to watch the state grow in this direction. You know, Bill, you know, as, as early as two years ago, I remember having conversations with Governor Kemp about this project of you know, bringing this type of manufacturing to the state, not just for its economic impact, but also for how it, like, creates an esprit de corps in a learning environment for even students. You know, uh, you recall when we were younger, taking a magnet and using copper wire and trying to create a motor. Um, how this goes down in eastern Georgia, south Georgia, to get kids involved in manufacturing and new technologies is going to be huge. I also want to just say quickly that I think it's really, really good that the Rivian spokespeople are recognizing that we're in a heavily and hot, in a hotly contested political environment. And they're not going to let the political um, partisanship sort of shape the, the story. And they're handling the story themselves because they know people are going to try and downplay this as a success for camp. Some people are going to try and overplay it as a success for camp. So accuracy is really important. Chuck? You know, the Rivian announcement, and I say this carefully, is Kia-esque. And I covered the beginning of Kia in 2004 when they were acquiring the land in West Point. The cultural changes are going to be phenomenal. Because the cultural changes in West Point area were, I mean, and it goes all the way to the core of who we are as Georgians, barbecue. The first Korean barbecue joint that popped up in West Point, I was like, okay, i got to go try Korean barbecue. Well, <laughs> it was not full pork. I'm telling you right now. So, but that's the cultural side, but the job side, the people it brings in, we, we are looking, I mean, I mean, I can't, Kia was what, 2,500 jobs, 2,700 jobs initially, and then the spin-out jobs were seven, 8,000 after that in the West Point area and East, East Alabama and West Georgia, all the way from Opelika to, say, Newnan. Um, but if you look at it now, I can't put my arms around 7,500 direct jobs. That is a phenomenal number in a little place like that. Just, I mean, uh, this is going to be incredible to watch. Uh, Sonia, you know, um, we have not been given a lot of information up until the announcement yesterday about everything that uh, Rivian uh, is getting in, in, in return for building there. And, and some of that data, may, uh, some of those promises by the state uh, may never be revealed to us. Uh, so one of the things, though, that, that has been hinted at is that there's a possibility that the legislature may take up uh, some measures that would, in fact, be favorable to the electric vehicle industry as part of this uh, Rivian deal. And if that's the case, for instance, it's interesting that Georgia uh, let its own tax credit for electric, buying an electric vehicle expire. Uh, it would strike me that it is likely you're going to see a renewed effort to pass a measure like that as Georgia becomes a center for uh, uh, this company. Yeah, I, w I, I would agree. I mean, the, the reality is that 
that Georgia really has, by and large, done a very good job of being able to attract new industry, um, make sure that we are on that kind of leading cusp even at times around some of these businesses. Now, at the same time, we we always are also thinking about the impact to other industries, and that is the reason why we sometimes make more short-sighted decisions, even as we know that, that there's um, sectors that will grow. In this case, we're seeing there's full knowledge that the EV industry, that is a growing sector, and we absolutely want to be part of it. And so I also would expect us to take up some measures. Um, the the, the uh, What's the good word that I'm trying to find here? The balance of that, though, is what is the impact, right, of course, to your additional vehicle uh, businesses. And so that, I believe, is going to be the push-pull that we end up seeing in that legislation. How willing are we to say, yes, whole hog, we're going in this direction? Um, or do we prefer to have that happen kind of quietly with whatever kind of credit we're, we're getting the economic development folks as opposed to the legislature. Bill, I'll point to a piece of um, legislation that has had a huge impact and is about to have a, just a, a transformational impact on EV vehicles in the state, and that's the bipartisan infrastructure bill that the Democrats passed in mm -hmm. Washington a couple of months ago. There's money in there for an electric vehicle charging network in the same way that you see gas stations now. That will enable the state and all states to have uh, a network of electric vehicle charging stations. Instead of gassing up, you will charge up. Um, those are still in development. We don't know exactly where they'll be or what that will look like, but that enables consumers to start to think about actually going to an all-electric vehicle instead of a traditional gas engine um, because you could take a road trip with your family, for example, in one of these Rivian um, SUVs and plug in halfway to the beach instead of um, asking where in the world <laughs> Who's got a charger? I can uh, charge this thing in. So that'll there's legislation at the state and federal levels that is really speeding this production and making it possible. And so uh, we've already heard Democrats and Republicans this morning taking credit for the Rivian uh, the Rivian announcement um, and also the environment that's been created to make moving to driving an electric vehicle more of a reality. It has to be said, Rivian, if people are not familiar with it, is an electric vehicle maker. They have never sold an actual vehicle that's on the road today. <laughs> so this is, um, you know, a bit of a flyer, but it, we may look back and, and realize that we have the Tesla, you know, we have Tesla in our midst and we didn't even quite understand it when it happened. Uh I, all right. Let's. I want to keep talking about this a little, especially the political side of it that Patricia just alluded to. But we're. I'm running late for our first break. Let me get it out of the way, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. We're back on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, uh, Chuck Williams, Senator Sonia Halpern, and Leo Smith join me uh, today. I, I do want to continue a little bit on talking about this Rivian deal, because as Patricia alluded to uh, before the break, uh, certainly there's going to be a political side to this story. Patricia, in the jolt this morning, you all reported that uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, at, at an event last night, a fundraising event last night, uh, she had a few comments to make about Rivian and the fact that she thinks Democrats deserve some credit for this, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And I was actually speaking with a Democratic operative yesterday to say, you know, with the state's unemployment falling to really what a historic low, um, partially that is because some people have dropped out of the workforce and have not returned, but that's also partially because uh, there uh, is just this hiring frenzy going on. So as how do Democrats message in a statewide election with an economy that really is so strong right now? And she said, well, we get the credit for it, obviously. You know, if you didn't have Joe Biden in office, if you didn't have Joe Biden feeding free vaccines to people, if he wasn't dealing with COVID, if he wasn't putting money in people's uh, bank accounts directly through uh, a lot of the relief bills that have come, then none of this would be happening. And so to me, it's a it's a really interesting push and pull to um, to. Uh, Put yourself in the middle of this uh, of this really good economy by letting voters know what you believe you've done uh, for Democrats. That is uh, to say, what we think we've done right 
um, that made this economy possible. It's not Brian Kemp, it's Joe Biden. Um, and I think voters in the end might give them all some credit. We'll see. And, and I think, uh, uh, Patricia, your, the Jolt reports also that, it, that she credits Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, our Georgia Democratic senators, as having uh, uh, been part of this because of their support for the Biden policies. Of course, specifically uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock for uh, making it a Democratic Senate that would speed through Joe Biden's policies and then, of course, supporting those policies once they got through the Senate. Well, Leo, you can hardly blame anyone for wanting to try to take at least some credit. I mean, I I think that makes perfect sense. On the other hand, uh, David Perdue apparently hasn't had a whole lot to say about this. Leo, how this will be a big feather in Brian Kemp's political cap, I think. I I don't mean to suggest it's game-changing, but it's certainly going to help him advance an argument he's been making all along, which is that he's been good, really good for the economy of Georgia despite the pandemic and whatever. Uh, Where does this put David Perdue? How does Dave, if you're an advisor to David Perdue right now, what do you tell your candidate to say about this? So, yeah, so I mean, certainly David Perdue is going to assert that uh, the $10 billion in startup funding that uh, Rivian had uh, um, even before 2019 is because of Trump policy and the investment, uh, uh, corporate investment Mm -hmm. models that he put out there. So that's going to be Purdue's tact. And of course, uh, Kemp can just clout the fact that he's been courting companies like this for a very long time, that he's shown that Georgia is a state that stays open for business as a way to be resilient and responsive to even things like pandemic, and that this is a great place to do business. And so they're both going to have um, their ways of messaging this, and I think they both got strong points. Uh, Sonia, I want to uh, extend this a little bit uh, further. At the fundraiser she attended uh, last night, uh, Stacey Abrams said, uh, yes, we celebrate uh, those who are going to benefit from the Rivian plant, but she tied it to what is going to be a central theme in her campaign, the expansion of Medicaid in Georgia, the full expansion of Medicaid. And what she said was, too many of us are feeling a little bit of a knot in our stomach, a little bit of resistance in our minds because we say the numbers say progress is being made. I don't feel it. I don't see it. And she suggested that if this uh, 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 Rivian uh, development may bring 7,500 jobs, the full expansion of Medicaid, she insists, would bring tens of thousands of new jobs to the state. Well, the connection may not be clear on why she would say that, but really, if you think about what happened over the course of the last 10 years in many of our rural areas, I'll just talk about rural hospitals for a moment, and economic development, when you have hospitals closing at the rate that we have had hospitals closing, it really does cut off the economic development opportunities for those communities, which means that um, th- those jobs that we are, you know, applauding right now, Meridian 7,500 jobs, will not come to those communities because businesses are not moving to communities that do not have some services, even in anticipation of new services coming once they get there. And so there is a real linkage between what is happening in our healthcare system and what that means economic development as one aspect of that. The other piece of it, of course, is that we have been in the mix of this pandemic and if it had shown nothing, What it has shown is the frailty of our uh, medical system and insureds versus uninsured and what that means for people. Um, I will tell you that one of the things I've been focused on a bit is, for example, our maternal mortality rate. Mm -hmm. And, And when I get to the root of that issue, right, where there is solutions, it, it always, all roads went laid back to Medicare expansion. And so those, this topic is a huge topic. I think it is something that is on the minds of a lot of people throughout our state. And that kind of expansion does lead to more jobs. It leads to better health. It leads to better productivity. It leads to better general outcome and welfare for the citizens of the state. Chuck, I'll give you the last chance to weigh in before we move on. Well, I'll just say one thing. Cuthbert, Georgia. Um, Cuthbert's hospital closed. Cuthbert's about 
60 miles, 50 miles south of here, Columbus. Cuthbert's Hospital closed a year, year and a half ago, and it was a central theme in both the ISOF and Warnock campaigns. Warnock was there a lot, and so was ISOF. And, you know, that hospital still sits empty. It, you know, it is not, that is one of the poorest parts of Georgia. And you look down there, you know, the county south of Columbus and the poverty that's there and the fact that you've either got to go to Albany or you fall Alabama or to Columbus or, you know, to Macon in some instances for health care. That's a haul. And a lot of people can't afford that, don't have the transportation or the access to get to it. There's there's a real oh. issue for Georgia. Yeah, what? I, I hadn't thought about this quite this way, Patricia, but when, when I hear Chuck talk about that, Sonia talk about uh, the lack of health care in uh, parts of rural Georgia, um, and you think about Stacey Abrams making Medicaid expansion a, a major plank in her uh, campaign, it, the interesting thing to me about that is it doesn't seem people in South Georgia bemoan the fact that they have to travel so far to get health care, but it doesn't, but it's still a red part of the state. It, those people are not suddenly becoming Democratic voters over this issue. Right. Well, some of them could become Democratic voters. I mean, that's the hope, that this is an issue that cuts across um, party lines and really gets to the heart of uh, people's own um, standard of living. And uh, there are hundreds of thousands of Georgians uh, right now who are employed, who do have jobs do not have health care insurance through those jobs and cannot afford the subsidies on the Obamacare exchange. And so there is this vast swath of Georgians who are working hard and have no health care access. Um, and that will drain the resources out of rural hospitals to the point that they can't even stay open for anybody, whether you have insurance or not. Um, and it makes it almost impossible to attract a new employer to an area if there's no hospital nearby or within driving distance, easy driving distance. Um, so it's an issue that the issue cuts across um, party lines. Um, and uh, certainly they're hoping that Abrams campaign is hoping that it will resonate with people uh, beyond their party and win over voters uh, who feel like maybe the Republicans aren't paying attention to this issue and aren't uh, concerned about their lives in that same way. Chuck? You know, there's a solution. It's a small solution, but it's a solution that's sort of taking shape here in Columbus. Mercer University just opened a third med school campus. They got one in Macon and one Savannah. They've opened one this, this semester in Columbus. Brand new Riverfront campus, spectacular. But it's Georgia. Uh, you got to be a Georgia resident to be a student. And then the graduates of this Mercer Med School, which was a combination of state money, but philanthropic <coughs> money out of Columbus and Mercer money. It was a true public-private partnership. That Those students have to go work in underserved areas of Georgia. It could be in an urban area that doesn't have the doctors or the medical professionals it needs. And I think you're going to see, I mean, I know Morehouse has a similar type program, program too, but you're starting to see these solutions where the state is helping these private universities that have the med schools push out these people, these doctors, these future doctors, into rural parts of our state that are underserved and need the mm. care. Okay, uh, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Senator Raphael Warnock uh, really kind of shook things up when he gave a speech on the floor suggesting the other day that if Democrats are willing to set special rules to pass a debt ceiling bill, they darn well ought to be willing to set a special rule to pass voting rights legislation. That's going to be our topic of conversation when we come back on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, um, as uh, Democrats in the Senate were uh, putting together a special rule to allow them to pass the debt ceiling measure <clears throat> without Republican support, uh, Senator Warnock uh, accused his colleagues, his Democratic colleagues, of moral hypocrisy because they relaxed rules to raise the debt ceiling but won't do the same for voting rights, a bill which is stalled in the Senate because Republicans uh, have not uh, come together to support it. Let's listen to just a little bit of a speech he gave on the subject, which really has gained him a lot of attention and maybe re put some new energy behind this measure. 
Future generations will ask, when the democracy was in a 911 state of emergency, what did you do to put the fire out? Did we rise to the moment or did we hide behind procedural rules? I believe that we Democrats can figure out how to get this done, even if that requires a change in the rules, which we established just last week that we can do when the issue is important enough. Well, the people of Georgia and across the country are saying that voting rights are important enough. Patricia? Yes, so Warnock has really taken the lead on the voting rights issue in the United States Senate, and it's an issue that is of uh, huge importance to Democrats nationwide, but he has really been um, given this mantle uh, because he's from Georgia, because he is such an eloquent speaker, and because he has come out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And so he has a he has the ability to cut through the Senate noise on this issue in a way that very few other people have figured out how to do on very few other issues. And he is not just calling out Republicans, but you heard there also his own colleagues and saying, look at what you're doing. Look at the role you're playing in obstructing progress on voting rights. Um, The reality is that you need to have um, at least one Republican willing to go along with the Democrats' idea that yeah, actually you can bend the Senate rules, if not break the Senate rules, to get around the filibuster. Um, and that's exactly what Democrats did last week to raise the debt ceiling. They did that with Mitch McConnell, who was a crucial partner in that effort. McConnell was more than willing to go along with that. It's because he knew he had the Republican votes on his side to raise the debt ceiling, but this was an agreement that they didn't have to go on the record to do it. That's not the same dynamic with voting rights. Republicans are not interested in helping Democrats move this. And even a handful of Democrats have said they don't want to make this a habit to be moving around the filibuster in ways that would uh, weaken it further. And so it was very eloquent. got lots of press, but I don't know that it's going to make a lot of progress right now. Yeah, uh, uh, Sonia, just from uh, talking about the procedural side of it, we've already got Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema saying neither of them is willing to budge on the filibuster just to pa- it, in, in passing a voting rights bill. So there are Democrats, uh, too, who uh, 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 these are two specific Democrats, Sonia, who don't want to do it. Um, tell us what your thoughts on this, Sonia. Yeah, I, this is a tricky thing, right? Because if you change, so what are the longer term effects, right? You change the filibuster. If you do it, what does that mean later? That's been kind of the concern that both um, Cinema and Mention have said. You know, at the end of the day, what I would say is that across this country, you have major changes happening to the voting laws, um, at least unprecedented, at least 19 states passed laws that make it harder for Americans to vote. And, and on the flip side of that, there are states that have expanded voting rights in this year as well. But on the balance, um, the states that have made it harder, and I would say that Georgia is inclusive in those states, um, are already states where it's, it's difficult. Add to that the context of the fact that we have just gone through redistricting and have drawn, you know, newly drawn maps and are headed into the midterms after a year that had the highest voter turnout in history, broke all records despite lots of the efforts to undermine that election process uh, in terms of the mail being slowed down, uh, and, you know, uh, COVID. And at this point, you know, half of young Americans report that they are severely concerned about democracy in this country. There is a real need and desire across the country to get this done, both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And also just so that that you know, more than 200 state lawmakers have also urged the U.S. Senate just this week to delay uh, their holiday recess in order to pass voting rights. 
there is a huge sentiment that this needs to happen. And uh, I don't know how it ends up sorting itself out, but I, but I do think that if it doesn't happen, it, it does damage to, it, it does damage to Democrats, frankly, going into midterms because you've got so many people, African Americans specifically, who are eager to have this happen. And so that whatever work needs to be done, whatever negotiations need to be done, whatever procedural changes need to be done, they need to figure out how to make it happen. Leo? Yeah, you know, this is emblematic of the procedural problem Democrats have in that Democrats tend to look at the broad um, values-based aspects of democracy. They turn to Congress to make things happen, while Republicans have been much more local using state legislating as the laboratory for creating democracy and election um, legislation. And, and, and that is the answer. Democrats have to figure out how to make lawmaking related to elections a local issue that can happen much more quickly than depending on Biden and Congress to do something. Republicans are doing that. They're doing it quick. They're doing it fast. They're setting up um, partnerships with organizations like Heritage. And Democrats are, meanwhile, depending on one man to get it done, the president. All right. I, I don't want to I don't want to get into a big debate about this. But I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that the reason federal legislation is being pushed by Democrats in Washington is because state legislatures dominated by Republicans are, uh, uh, according to Democrats, believe making it harder for people to vote. I'm not quite sure what leverage Democrats have to take action on their own in states and, and local communities, Leo. But let me let me keep moving on this a little bit, because, Chuck, I think Sonia said something really important, um, that while Republicans uh, uh, in, among many Democratic voters will be blamed for blocking uh, legislation on voting rights, President Biden is, is being criticized heavily by many uh, 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 civil rights and voting rights leaders because they feel he has not worked hard enough to do something about this. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. You know, one of the things that struck me, and I think this goes to what the Senator uh, Warnock's uh, speech from the well, the good reverend's clearly been preaching longer than he's been politicking, and he has an eye for hypocrisy. And when people like him stand up and call out the hypocrisy, that reaches all the way to the White House. I mean, he's not just calling out his colleagues. He's calling out the president and everybody, you know, from – you know, from the White House down. And, you know, it was refreshing to watch. I mean, he, I mean, that was a, that was a pretty powerful, powerful speech and right time. I mean, says the right time. And, you know, you're right. Reverend Warnock will have a voice in this and it's a voice that Democrats and Republicans ignore at their own peril. Yeah. Well, we should just quickly say anybody who spent time at Ebenezer Baptist Church, whether you wanted to vote for Warnock or not, knows what an extraordinary speaker is and what a real opportun- privileged opportunity is to get him in, hear him in that pulpit. And he brings that same passion to the Senate. All right, Patricia, before we leave, Buckhead, Georgia. What the heck? Where is Buckhead, George? I mean, I've seen it. Is it along? Do I see it along I-16 or I-20? The sign saying Buckhead, Georgia. No, you see it after uh, you see it on I twenty east out of Atlanta. Um, it's a couple of exits after the Madison exit and a couple of exits before Lake Oconee. It's really sandwiched in between the two of those. Um, Buckhead, Georgia, has been officially a city since nineteen oh eight, sanctioned, uh, uh, chartered by the state of Georgia. But the name and the town date back to the Revolutionary War. And so I went out there to talk to the people of Buckhead, Georgia, because. Um, they are are very strongly against Buckhead City, especially because they feel like the name Buckhead is their name. Um, in a lot of ways, this little town, the name is 
uh, almost the only thing they have left at this point. They've really been hollowed out by the economy in that part of the state. Um, they're very proud of it, and it's theirs. They have the they have the receipts to prove it from 1908. I spoke with the mayor um, and a lot of locals there as well. They said they get a lot of mail uh, mixed up between the two Buckheads. Uh, they have uh, GPS sending people out to Buckhead, Georgia, looking for Linux Mall. Um, uh, from a safety perspective, they want to make sure that uh, fire and uh, emergency vehicles know which Buckhead to be going to. Um, and more than anything, they really do feel like this is their history and that the people in Buckhead City have paid them no attention, have not reached out to them, and are just sort of bulldo- bulldozing their way through this process without talking to them. So so uh, you could read that column, uh, which Patricia Murphy uh, has put online. Uh, we'll put a link to it up in our social media. But in the meantime, Sonia, before we leave, uh, that's kind of an interesting, fun little story. But the issue of city of Buckhead coming up in the legislature is going to be anything but a fun discussion. You're going to have a really interesting debate on your hands in the state Senate and, of course, across the way in the state house over this. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's so many things about this idea of um, of Buckhead effectively de-annexing out of a, the city, starting with the fact that it is unprecedented, right? We, we, we don't really allow for that for a reason. And when you think about all of the, the entanglements, let's just say, between neighborhoods that all make up a city, it's impossible to just separate one out and, set and, and not understand what the, what the damage can be. We, we have been really promoting a lot the fact that CPS, the schools, are a big, huge issue. We have been really highlighting the fact that the debt, uh, that there's a lot of debt that Buckhead, and at Buckhead exists because of Atlanta. Atlanta exists because of Buckhead. There is a symbiotic relationship here that we can't ignore. And, All right. Uh, Sonia Helper. Thank you. Sonia, I'm sorry. I, I, thank you. I've got to say you got the last word of the show because we're rapidly running out of time. Leo Smith wants to say that he knows that the problem is Democrats got to build their strength in states uh, if they ever expect to do anything locally about voting rights. But anyhow, Leo Smith, thank you for being with us on the show today. Chuck Williams, thank you for coming to add us from down in Columbus. And Patricia Murphy, as always, I'm so glad to work with you. As we leave you today, let me just say, you know, we did two days of fundraising this week on Political Rewind, and I am beyond grateful. So is our team, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistoss, Jesse Neiswanger, and I, for the way that you support this program. It just fills our hearts with gratitude for all of you. So thank you. Uh, We're out of here uh, for the weekend. I hope yours is a great one. Please take care, stay healthy, and if you had your two shots, go out and get that booster now. Omicron is coming at us. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Political Rewind back on Monday.